Earlier we sang from Psalm 19. Let's turn there now and read it. So important. We're going to go over it twice in these two different ways before we come to our sermon text in Romans 1. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let us turn now to Romans chapter 1. Last week, our text was verses 16 and 17, and then I'm going to read them again now um, as we get into verses 18 to 20, our text for today. So starting back at verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may have encountered uh, Douglas Adams his satirical sci-fi book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it uh, famously tells of a supercomputer called Deep Thought that uh, figures out after eons and eons of uh, 
computation. Figures out the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And the answer is 42. That's the answer. But, of course, this doesn't really do anybody any good because nobody knows the ultimate question. 42 is the answer, but what's the question? And the computer says, well, that'll take eons and eons more to figure out. It's much harder. Um, And, of course, again, it's satire, it's farcical, it's silly. And I'm not sure we would agree with Douglas Adams about what, what the life what the answer to life, the universe, and everything is um, in a more serious moment for him. But the point is this. It's a good reminder that if we start by asking the wrong questions, we're going to get the wrong answers. right? Or the answers that we do get, we aren't going to understand. They're not going to do us any good. Last week, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, the kind of thesis statement of the book of Romans, right? It's like Paul gave us the answer. Right off the bat. Well, the answer is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's where God reveals his righteousness, which, which we get to experience in a saving way through faith in him, right? And the gospel, then, is in a very real sense the answer to life, the universe, and everything. But Paul knows that that information isn't going to help the Roman Christians very much if they don't understand the problem that makes the gospel so necessary. He's given them that ultimate answer up front, but now he's about to take, take a step back. And the rest of chapter 1 and on through chapter 3, he is going to be giving a lot of attention to the ultimate question, the great problem that has thrown life and the universe and everything into this confusion of chaos that required the death and resurrection of the Son of God. To make things right. That question, that problem, of course, is sin. The sin of the human race in general, and then of every human being in particular, as part of that sinful humanity. And um, so to understand what sin is, then, I have to take another step back, and you have to understand what people are sinning against. Where does sin come from? What exactly is it that makes human beings like us guilty in the sight of a holy God and deserving of his just judgment? Okay. So we're kind of working backwards from the gospel to, to get into it, a running start. And it helps to recognize the kind of sweep of the book, where Paul is going here. Again, his object in the next two and a half chapters is to show that all people, Jews and Gentiles both, share the same ultimate problem of sin. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you're from. You start out life not innocent, not as some kind of blank slate, not basically good and then society corrupts you. No, you start out life guilty and corrupt. Guilty before the bar of divine justice and morally corrupt from the inside out. Well, when people hear that kind of thing, a very natural objection arises right away, very often. Just how can you say that 
people who've never heard about God, never heard about Christ, never heard the Ten Commandments, for example, or the Gospel, how can they be guilty if they don't know the rules they were supposed to be following or the God that they were supposed to be obeying? How can they be treated as rebels against God if they don't even know who God is because they've never encountered the Scriptures? And this is where Paul begins here. He's making a very striking, very big claim that actually all people, without exception, do know God. All people, without exception, do know God. And it's whether or not they've read the Bible, whether or not they've come in contact with the church and heard the gospel, they do know God. This Bible is not the only way to encounter the truth about God. It's not, and it's not the first way that anybody encounters the truth about God. There's another way that God makes himself known, which everyone has access to, and that is the natural world, the world that we all share, that we all live in. And so we're going to explore that in these verses um, using these three headings that try to follow Paul's train of thought here. Number one is just the statement, people suppress the truth about God. Number two will be that people know the truth about God. And number three, the point will be people's inexcusable response to God's inescapable revelation. Okay, so people suppress the truth about God, number one. People know the truth about God, number two. And number three, people's inexcusable response to God's inescapable revelation. So first, I said people suppress the truth about God. So what does that mean? Well, to begin with, I want to uh, notice the connection here between verse 17 and verse 18. I backed up there for a reason. I want you to hear the, the kind of rhyming ideas. In both verses, Paul says that something is being revealed, right? Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Verse 18 a related aspect of God's character is being revealed there too. That is God's wrath. Now, God's wrath really is, is an expression of his righteousness. His righteousness as it responds to evil. His righteousness as it responds to things that are not right. That's not right. When, when, when you and I uh, sense that something is not right, we experience the human emotion of anger. That's our natural response, a God-given response to things that are not right. God gave us anger as the appropriate emotional response to the not-rightness of things. Now, God does not kind of get angry like we do, where our emotions kind of ebb and flow, they come and go. No, God's wrath is um, his eternal, unchanging, constant attitude towards sin and evil always and everywhere. Of course, also as human beings, we um, get angry often at the wrong things and at the wrong people for the wrong reasons, at the wrong times, things like that. God's wrath is not like that either. It is always perfectly just 
It's always perfectly holy. It's always in perfect proportion, perfectly calibrated to reality. And why is that? Well, because again, it's an expression of his righteousness. Right? God's righteousness, that sense that God will always do what is right. Um, But that sense of injustice that we have, that uh, deep unrest that we have when we sense that something is just wrong, and that desire that we have, that drive to do something about it because something is not right and it needs to be corrected, that, I think, is a pale reflection in us as the image of God of this just and righteous wrath of God. This is describing against all evil everywhere all the time. Okay, now there are many examples of ungodliness and unrighteousness that we could give, uh, kind of particular varieties of sin and evil where, where um, God's righteousness means that he's going to respond in wrath to these whole set of different offenses. Um, but Paul starts here with something actually very basic, something that um, underlies uh, other specific expressions of our sinful hearts. It's this general attitude that all sinners share of just not wanting to listen to God. Not wanting to listen to God. And Paul terms this suppressing the truth. He's talking about these people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So God, God's righteousness is being revealed, but there are unrighteous people who don't want that revelation. They don't want to listen. In their unrighteousness, they're suppressing the truth. I had a professor in seminary who liked to use the illustration of a beach ball. If you've ever been at the pool with a beach ball, you know how tricky it can be to hold it under the water, especially if it's a really big one, a lot of air in it. It keeps wanting to roll out from under you maybe, come back up to the surface. Every time you try to get on top of it, it kind of slips out to one side or something and uh, it just keeps coming back up because it's very, very buoyant, right? The, the water is pushing it up because of all the, um, uh, the air inside. It's not dense. And so you, you can keep trying and keep trying. Eventually, maybe you figure out how to, how to hold it down. Maybe you have to like, lie on top of it with your whole body or something, wrap your arms around it, and then it's kind of trying to flip you over and everything. But even as, after you succeed in holding it down, it still is pushing back up, up against you, right? Still pushing back, still trying to get back out. Earlier, I, I, I mentioned the common question, how can God punish people for not obeying him when they don't even know who he is? And Paul is here challenging the assumption behind that question, saying things are very much the other way around. The world is not full of people who are clueless about God and so they can't be blamed for not obeying him. No, Paul flips that over. He says the world is full of people who do know God, God has clearly revealed himself to them, but they're in denial. They are pushing that knowledge down. They are trying to hold it under the water. That truth that they know, they don't want to admit. This is what verse 19 goes on to explain. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And this is that second point, people... No. People know the truth about God. 
Now, you might imagine if I, if I wrote you a letter, um, it comes in the mail, go down to the mailbox, get it out. You could say, oh, that's letters from Zach. I'm not going to open that letter. I don't want to read what it says. And you, and you wouldn't know what it said. You'd be ignorant of the contents because you refused to read it. And I could write to you again and again. But as long as you left those letters unopened, you wouldn't know what I was trying to say to you. That is not the kind of situation that Paul is talking about here. He's not merely saying, well, God's revealing the truth to people, but it's up to them whether they're going to listen or not, and some people just don't know because they are not paying attention. They didn't open the letter. No, that's not true. What Paul is saying here is that there are certain things about God that people can't not know, that people can't help knowing. In other words, God's revelation is so powerful that it always has the effect that God intends. That same teacher of mine I was talking about earlier liked to say that God's revelation gets through. It gets through. See, not only has God shown it to them, That's the revealing action on God's part. But Paul is saying more than that. It's not just that Paul is speaking. He says, it is in fact plain to them. He's talking about the impact on the person's side of things. He's talking about the effect. They really know. They really know. Where it says um, what can be known about God is plain to them. The New American Standard Translation says it is evident within them. Um, And the King James similarly says it is manifest in them. And I think that's a good translation. He's not just talking about something God is trying to do, but then these people can choose whether or not they want to ignore it, um, whether they want to receive that revelation or not. No, God is more sovereign than that. His revelation is more powerful than that. What God wants his creatures to know about him, they will know about him, even if they don't particularly want to know. Um, I wonder if you've ever been in a conversation where somebody um, told you something you really didn't want to know about them. And you say, TMI, TMI, please don't tell me that. But you can't unhear it. And you wish that you could. I wish I didn't know that. I wish I didn't have that mental image, but now I have it in my head. Thanks a lot. See, we are not in total control of what we know. Right? Or what we learn. Some things are thrust upon our attention inescapably. The knowledge of God is one of them because he is sovereign over his creatures and their minds and over his revelation. And you might ask, well, how does this happen? We're talking about people who maybe never read the Bible, who haven't been in contact with the people of God, and yet you're saying that that God has shown them certain things about himself that are plain to them. Well, how? What's the mechanism for getting that truth across? And to that, we can give a one-word answer, which is creation. Creation reveals its creator because that's the way the creation is designed. It reveals him persistently, perpetually, and powerfully to everybody inside it. Creation reveals these certain basic and fundamental truths about the God who made it. And simply by being part of that creation, you have this awareness inescapably of the God who made you. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
You notice this sort of uh, irony or kind of paradox here. They're invisible things that are clearly perceived. Isn't that interesting? Invisible things clearly perceived. Uh, That's what God's creation does. It takes these invisible things about God and it communicates them to us in a visible way. There are all these things about God that we can't see with our eyes because God is a spirit. But what God has done to fix that problem is he has created all these things that we can see. And not just that, but he makes them in such a way that when we encounter those created things, we see certain things about the invisible God who made them. We perceive clearly these things about God. Notice he's not just saying, well, God has given us a world and then he sent us out into it and we're supposed to make some observations and then try to reason our way to draw some conclusions from, from what we see. Well, I, you know, if P then Q, I guess I see this, I guess there must be a God. It's not a, it's not a process of reasoning our way up to God that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about an immediate knowledge, an impression, a perception. We are perceiving certain things about God just by living in his world. Now, creation doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God, right? It doesn't give us all the information, the fuller information that the Bible gives to us about what God is like, and especially about what God has done in history. Creation doesn't tell us about the incarnation of Jesus. It doesn't tell us about his death and resurrection or the meaning of those saving acts. You can't learn those things just by looking at the world. There's no doubt. But here's what you can learn. Here's what Paul says... You can't help but learn simply by living in God's world. One is his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So starting with his eternal power, I think that's what Psalm 19 is getting at when it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is what um, in theological terms we call general revelation, general Revelation, revelation that's available generally to everybody without exception just by living in God's world. You look at the beauty and the vastness and the intricacy and the variety and the orderliness and the, just the mind-boggling scale of the universe. And you think, wow, you're being impressed, you're confronted in an immediate way with the glory of God in his handiwork. And that's, that's true, by the way, whether or not you put that experience, that impression, into words. It's true whether you accept it and welcome it, or whether you reject it and deny it, try to suppress it. And why is that? It's because this knowledge is not just a set of facts to acknowledge. It's not just a list of, statement, of statements to which we assign a, a true truth value. It is God himself that we perceive, that we know, whose glory inescapably impresses upon us this awareness and consciousness of his existence, his power, his wisdom, and his sovereignty, his authority over us. Again, it's not just the heavens declare God's glory and then we can decide whether or not we want to listen. It says, day to day pours out speech, Psalm 19 says. Night to night reveals knowledge and there is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Then it it goes on to uh, compare this revelation of God's glory to the sun. Think about the sun. When you wake up in the morning, do you think, I wonder if there is a sun or not? 
going to go out and explore the world and see if I can go through a process of reasoning to determine whether or not there's a sun. And No, what you got is you, you experience the sunlight. Even if you close your eyes, you see the brightness through your closed eyelids. There is day. You're living in the light. You immediately know there is sunlight. You just experience it and you can't unsee that. You can't unknow it. Again, this revelation gets through. There's no avoiding it. You can't not know it. And that's why Paul says there in verse 20, not only have these truths about God been clearly communicated, that's on God's side, he says that they have in fact been clearly perceived. They have been clearly perceived. That's on the human side. And so he says they are without excuse. Without excuse. Now remember, these verses are part of a larger argument that Paul is building here to show that all people everywhere are guilty and under the power of sin. And that God, therefore, would be perfectly within his rights to condemn all of us. If he chose. We can't respond back, but, but Lord, I didn't know. How can you punish me for something that I, that, that I did in ignorance? And Paul is saying nobody can make that claim. Nobody ever did it in ignorance. At least nobody, nobody who lives in God's world, at least, which is everybody. Because God's world is a truth-telling world. It's a world that when you encounter it, produces an awareness of its creator in us creatures who, who live in that world. And so when people see all of this, when they see this, this world that we live in, they, they experience that awareness of God. They hear that voice of nature saying, God made me. Look how glorious he is. But, of course, the problem is people respond by stopping their ears. It's like trying to shut your eyes against the sunlight. Or stop your ears against this voice of creation. No, 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 God, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know that. And when they suppress that truth, they try to hold it down like that beach ball. They do this because they don't, understand, uh, because they don't, like, they don't like the demands that that truth might make on their lives. And so, because of that, you see then how God is indeed quite righteous to reveal in response his wrath against that kind of ungodliness, that kind of unrighteousness, that kind of denial, that willful ignorance and folly. And this is important, that kind of ingratitude. Ingratitude towards God. Look at this wonderful world that I've made for you. It shows you how good and how wise I am. It shows you what I'm like. It teaches you that I'm your creator king and you want nothing to do with me. You want to pretend like you didn't hear. But you did hear. You do know, and you are without excuse. So stop pretending. Stop pretending. That is the call to repentance from this passage. Now, Paul's going to go on in the rest of the chapter to explain a little more about how this truth-suppressing rebellion uh, works out in action, what its consequences are, how God responds, and so forth. Uh, So there's a lot more to be said, but um, stopping here at the end of verse 20, there are three applications I want to draw for us, the people of God, today. First thing is that these verses are a reminder to us just to open our eyes a little wider, open our hearts a little wider, to look for God's glory in God's world. If this is what people do in unrighteousness, suppressing the truth, what's the opposite of that when you go out and encounter the created world? 
when you go out and just live in the world that God's made, when you open your eyes in the morning. It's true that we can't help knowing something about God just from existing in his word, but that's a pretty low bar, right? And there's so much more to be known if we will open our eyes and look with faith. That's just the beginning, because the, the closer we look, the more that we'll see. If somebody who doesn't even want to have anything to do with God can't help seeing something of his glory, looking at nature, just imagine the depth and the beauty and, and just the sheer joy that will open up to us as the people of God if we look with faith, if we look with open hearts at that same world and everything that it contains, everything it has to show us about its creator. See, this is why Christians should and often have been at the forefront, not the rear, of of science and learning and the arts, not not retreating from these things as some kind of threat to our faith. We need to hold up and be wary of, but embracing these things as, as ways of beholding ever more clearly and more deeply the glory of God and the things that he's made. Second thing, these verses are very important to remember when we're called on to defend the Christian faith against its opponents. It's the application for apologetics, we could say. The defense of the faith. Um, We enter those kinds of conversations with an important advantage that we need to make the most of. The advantage of knowing that those arguing against the truth actually have within their hearts an inescapable awareness of God from the very beginning of the conversation. Not just an awareness that there is a God. It's, again, it's not just a set of statements. In fact, they, they, if you put it in statement form, wrote it out on paper, they may deny it. They may say, I don't believe that. I don't believe there's a God at all. And yet they cannot escape this awareness of God himself. The whole world is shouting it out. Their own hearts, their own, the way they're made in God's image is shouting out to them. And so our goal in apologetics and evangelism, then, is to appeal, to appeal to that knowledge that people already have and to show them gently, persistently, though, that, that much of the way they live their lives is actually more consistent with that inward sense that they're trying to suppress than it is with the outward beliefs that they claim to profess. You say you believe this, but you're acting this way because you know that this is true. Um, So our goal is to show them then the goodness and the joyfulness of living in harmony with that inward sense of the way things are by listening to the word of God and seeing how it matches that inward sense instead of kicking against that inward sense, instead of kicking against the Lord himself, which is... Exercise in futility. Last thing, third application. This passage is a very serious warning. It's a warning for us not to ignore the voice of God speaking to us in nature as well as the scriptures. Not to claim that we can't hear it not to claim that it's not clear enough. God is speaking. He's speaking clearly in the world that he has made. And so, as the book of Hebrews says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
Do not refuse him. See, to listen, to acknowledge what God is saying here takes a lot of humility. It takes humility because what he's saying is, is not just that he's there, that he exists, but also that he is in charge and that he can tell you what to do. And so you can understand why people would want to suppress that, why they want to block it out. I don't want to believe because I don't want to be beholden to such a God. But that doesn't change the reality, that reality that God is there, that God has spoken clearly, that we are all accountable for that knowledge, and that he will reveal his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who refuse to listen. Thanks be to God, though, that that wrath of God revelation of his righteous wrath against truth-suppressing sinners, that that is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for the people of God, at least. Remember verse 18. Verse 18 forms a pair with verse 17. God reveals his righteousness in more than one way. There's more than one thing about God being revealed in this book. God can reveal his righteousness in wrath against us, which is what we deserve. But in the gospel, God has revealed that same righteousness, but in a different way. That wrath that we deserve, he has taken upon himself instead in the death of Christ. That is the gospel. Remember, his righteousness and his salvation in the cross are revealed together. And so for all of us who who naturally come into the world not liking the truth, not wanting to hear it, not wanting to obey it, This remarkable mercy of the gospel is that God has made a way. God has made a way for those kinds of people, people like us, to experience his righteousness, not condemning us in wrath, but instead saving us through the cross of Christ. Our righteous Savior, who now is changing our hearts, changing our hearts from the inside out, teaching us through the power of the Holy Spirit, to love the truth, to see in it the beauty and the glory of everything that he's done and everything that he is and everything that he can do for those who put their trust in him. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all nature sings your glory. Help us to see it see it more and more, and when we see it, help us to love it, to embrace it, rather than kicking against it. Lord, help us to help others to see. Make us part of your plan to bring sinners to experience your righteousness, not in wrath, but in salvation. We pray all of this in the name of our righteous Savior, Jesus. Amen.